If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to Psalm 119. Psalms are in the middle of your Bibles. They're in the Old Testament. Please turn to Psalm 119. Today we will take a brief break from the sermon series that we've been in, titled The Christ is Coming. There are, God willing, two sermons left in that series. And then we will begin actually two new sermon series. I will begin a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew. Our brother Rex Blackburn will begin a series in the book of Philippians. Uh, But that is still to come. We take a break from all those series today for a topical message. And I'd like to direct us to Psalm 119. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Let's pray once more together. Father, You have told us that Your Word is your very breath. The Apostle Paul has said as much in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. We pray now as we come before your very word, please disclose something of your person, your being, your nature, your attributes, your heart, your will to us. Bless us in the contemplation of the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Today, it's been mentioned a couple of times, we mark our five-year anniversary as a church. The church was planted on August 5th, 2017. From one angle, someone might say, any significance we would ascribe to this day is purely arbitrary. There's nothing sacred about five-year anniversary. But from another angle, I think today is quite significant for at least a few reasons. First, it should be said, the Bible often acknowledges important dates, events, festivals, holidays and days of remembrance, and these days were often celebrated annually. Uh, I see no reason why the birth of one of Christ's churches should not be one of those things uh, that is celebrated annually in similar fashion. Surely we mark and celebrate other things of lesser importance, but a church born and sustained by the grace of God, that is certainly worth marking and worth celebrating. Uh, Second, anniversaries provide an occasion to take stock and to acknowledge the goodness, kindness, and provision of God. And friends, has the Lord not been kind to us in our five years together as a church? A few folks have asked me the last couple of weeks uh, how I personally feel in light of uh, us reaching the five-year mark as a church. And my mind keeps going to one image in particular. Uh, Earlier this summer, uh, our family and another family from the church went to the beach together. And uh, the kids, they're small kids, like to ride boogie boards. Um, maybe some of the adults too, and uh, the thing on a boogie board is that it requires like no effort, uh, so it's, it's all payoff. If you catch that wave, you have to do nothing to sort of ride it all the way to the shore other than just holding on to that board. In a sense, that's how the last five years have felt to me, uh, riding the wave of the blessing and the kindness and the mercy of God. Uh, that's not to diminish the significant amount of work that has gone into the church literally by hundreds of people here and outside of this church. But nonetheless, what prevails in my mind is this sense that God has been with us 
and God has showered blessing and kindness on us, and we've just been riding the wave of that for these five years. Uh, So anniversaries, I think, are a good time to remember and to give thanks and to share testimony and to acknowledge the goodness, kindness, and provision of God. Third, I think the five-year mark in particular is significant. Five years is an important and significant duration of time in the life of a church. The longer I'm alive, the more a year seems like a microscopic period of time. But five years is different. And if church planting gurus are to be trusted, which they're not, but if they were, the gurus usually make much of the first five years, often highlighting the fact that most church plants fail before they reach year five. Uh, But if they make it to year five, that's a sure sign they're going to continue that they've sort of made it as a church. Many other organizations and ministries have resources and conferences particularly targeted at the first five years of a church's life. I went to a conference once called the First Five Years Conference, uh, viewing those first five years as a telling and pivotal period in the time of a church's existence. I don't know that there is actually anything sacred about the five-year mark, but subjectively, it seems to me that much is demonstrated by a church enduring and maturing through a period of five years. So as we reach five years, I'd like to suggest that we view today as something of the end or the closing of a certain chapter in this church's existence. Uh, Churches, like people, go through different stages. They have infant stages. They have adolescence. They have uh, maturity. Well, maybe we haven't moved into maturity, uh, but our infancy, in some sense, is over. And when we started, this room was empty. Now it's full. When we started, we had zero officers. Now we have ten. When we started, there were all kinds of unanswered questions. The commitment of this church to truly love one another and to serve Christ together as a church was unproven. Our hope that the Lord would indeed be with us and the work of this church, though well-grounded, had not yet been realized. But now many questions have been answered, many things have been proven, and I think God has unmistakably been with us. I propose that today marks the end of the beginning. Emmanuel Church has been established, praise God. A new chapter opens, and now it is ours to continue in the grace of God, holding to the same biblical principles and ideals upon which this church was founded. So what to preach on such an occasion? Many subjects have gone through my mind, but as I've prayed and as I've meditated, one has repeatedly suggested itself to me as I've thought about today. I want to preach to you this morning about the centrality of the Bible in the life of the Christian and in the life of the people of God. And I have prayed that this sermon would excite in us greater hunger for the Bible and that it would stimulate within us a greater treasuring of the Word of God. And I mean this sermon also as a call to us, a summons to resolve anew whatever lies ahead to hunger and thirst after the Scriptures, and to make the Word of God the very center of our life together. So what does it mean to hunger for the Word of God? Use that phrase a time or two. What does it mean to have an appetite for the Word of God, to hunger and thirst after the Bible? Well, first, we should start with this thought. Throughout the Scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments, the people of God have always been called, formed, and kept by the Word of God. The world itself was created by the Word of God. 
Adam and Eve in the garden had their life through the Word of God. After sin entered the world, the hope of mankind was founded in God's commitment to continue to reveal Himself and to pledge Himself to His people through His Word. Abraham was called out of Ur through God's Word. His entire life was shaped by the redemptive promises that God gave to Abraham through His Word. Moses, the great prophet of God, was called to speak God's Word to his people, and he was indeed the first one called to write it out for them. And the people of Israel were to receive God's Word. They were to write it on their doorposts. They were to bind it as signs on their hands. They were to teach the Word of God to their children. Israel depended at all times on the Word of God. So many of the Psalms extol the Word of God. You think of David's reflections in Psalm 19. We sing that psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul in that great litany of praise ascribed to God in His Word. I've turned us this morning to Psalm 119, which is the longest of the Psalms, and is one just extended glorious meditation on the beauty and the power and the centrality of the Word of God. Even when Israel was in exile, it was the Word that sustained the Lord's people. The prophets of old came and spoke the Word of God to His people. And in those days, they had nothing at all but His Word, and the Lord was faithful to give it to them and to preserve them by His Word. Then in the New Testament, we get God's Word incarnate. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And now God, who long ago and at various times spoke to our fathers by the prophets, now in these last days, He speaks to us by His Son, whom God has appointed, the heir of all things. And so Jesus comes, as we observed a few weeks ago, as a kind of greater Moses. God's prophet, the full and final disclosure of God Himself, and He speaks God's words to the people. And so it is that Peter in John 6, when he's asked if he's going to reject Christ and leave Him like all the others, what does Peter say? He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And so Jesus Himself says in John 8, 31, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When we look at the church in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, we see from the very beginning after Peter's great sermon at Pentecost, we read that the newly formed church in Jerusalem was devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the Word. When that same church in Acts 6 is overwhelmed by benevolent needs, the church founds a whole new office to address those needs so that the church's leaders can continue to commit themselves to what? The ministry of the Word and prayer. When that church is persecuted and scattered in Acts 8, we read they go about preaching the Word. In Acts 11, we read the glad news that the Gentiles received the Word. In Acts 12, we read that the Word increased and multiplied. When Silas and Timothy arrive in Corinth, how do they find Paul? In Acts 18, we read that they found Paul occupied with the Word. What a happy occupation that is. It is no surprise then that when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he tells them to take the Word of God to themselves as a great sword for their warfare against Satan, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible. And then when Paul writes to his apprentice Timothy, who's pastoring that same church in Ephesus, he urges him to devote himself to the public reading and teaching of the Word, to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season. Friends, this little survey of text I've just laid before you took me about 15 minutes to prepare. It doesn't even scratch the surface of the Bible's teaching regarding the centrality of the Word of God to the people of God throughout redemptive history. God's people have always been called, formed, and kept by His Word. 
The Bible is central to God's revelation about Himself and about man and about salvation. And it is through His Word that He calls and constitutes His people. Which means, friends, we as God's people are brought together by His Word. We, therefore, must be people of the book. We are Bible people. If we are God's people at all, then we are people of the Word. He has no other kind of people. God's people are Bible people. And therefore, we as God's new covenant people, namely the church, must hold the Bible to be central to everything that we are and everything that we do. We as a local church here at Emmanuel must hold the Bible to be everything to us. Brothers and sisters, you realize we have nothing and we are nothing as the church if we do not have God's Word with us. It is the banner under which we march. It is the North Star that guides us in the night. It is the signal that brings us safely home. It is the trumpet blast that summons us to arms. It is that strong tower in which we can hide and find refuge. It is a light to us in this dark world when all the other lights go out. It is the pillar and foundation upon which our spiritual house is built. We as a church are nothing and we have nothing if we don't have the Word of God. It is precisely because we are the people of God that we are therefore people of the book. Okay, so now, let me ask you, if the people of God are called, formed, and kept by God's Word, what should characterize such people? What should be true of Bible people? I'll often encourage us to think of ourselves that way. We're Bible people if we're Christians. If we're God's people at all, we're Bible people. What ought to characterize Bible people? At least four things. Number one, Bible people should prize the Bible above all else. Bible people should prize the Bible above all else. Look again at Psalm 119, that extended reflection on the Word of God. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Friends, Bible people should prize the Bible above their jobs, their families, their money, their recreations, their retirement goals, their very lives. Bible people believe and know that if they don't have the Bible, they have nothing. They prize the Bible above everything. And Bible people therefore organize their lives in such a way as to communicate that this matters to them above all else. His Word is better than life. His commandments sweeter than honey. His promises more splendid than the crown jewels. His Word is better than food or drink or sex or money or the beach or the mountains or holidays with the grandkids or a date night with your spouse or any other thing. Bible people prize the Word above all else. So I give you a test to diagnose your interest in the Bible. 
My friend, if I asked you, you can either have the Bible or your house, your cars, your savings, and all your retirement. You can't have both. Which would you choose? Would it be better to be homeless with nothing but the shirt on your back with the Bible or to have the riches of the world without it? To the single person here, so desperately longing for a spouse, if I told you it's either the Bible or that longed-for spouse, which would you choose? Would it be better to be single with the Bible or to have a husband or to have a wife without it? To the couple here so eager to have children, if I told you it's either the Bible or children, which would you choose? Would it be better to have that beloved baby in your arms without the Bible, or to be barren and childless, but to have the very Word of God. Uh, Friends, we're not asked to make these choices, praise God, but the contemplation of the question may have the effect of searching our hearts. Peter left all to follow Jesus because he knew he alone had the words of eternal life, and that's all that mattered to him. If he's got the words, that's where I'm headed. And everything else for Peter just sort of diminished in its significance in the face of this great matter to have the Lord's words, which, of course, we have through the Bible, which we have through the eyewitness reports about Jesus and about the people of God throughout the centuries. Everything else just depreciated in its importance compared to this grand issue, to have the Word of God, to have the Bible. Bible people are those who prize the Word of God above all else because we know it is in the pages of Scripture that we find truth and life and hope and salvation. It is in the pages of Scripture that we find our Lord Himself, and there is no having Him apart from the revelation of Himself in the Bible. You cannot know God apart from the Bible. You understand that, right? Uh, so, so you can learn some things through nature, and through what can be seen, but you cannot truly know God in the saving way in Jesus Christ apart from the Bible. If you want to know God in a saving way, there's only one way. It's through His Word. This is the means that He Himself has appointed to reveal Himself. He discloses Himself through His Word. And thus, ultimately, we treasure the Bible because we treasure God. Furthermore, to be Bible people and to prize the Bible above all else means that when confronted with questions of truth, questions of right and wrong, questions requiring sound judgment and wisdom, questions of life and death. We are interested most of all in what the Bible says. We give pride of place to the Scriptures. The most urgent issue for the Christian when facing any question or any decision or any matter is, what has my Lord said? What has God revealed in His Word? We prize His Word above that of our teachers, our coaches, our therapists, our counselors, our attorneys, our doctors, our financial advisors, our politicians, His Word is preeminent. Let God be true and every man a liar. I want to know what my God has said because I prize His Word above all. So you take any given issue. Uh, you could take anxiety and fear. Uh, and, and we could if we wanted to. We want to know what, what does Dr. Phil think about anxiety and fear? You know Dr. Phil? Does anybody watch Dr. Phil anymore? Is he even on TV anymore? I, I don't know, sincerely. Um, 
He's got a book, I'm sure, on anxiety and fear. And you could go to that book and you can find a compendium of Dr. Phil's thoughts on anxiety and fear or any sort of celebrated clinical psychiatrist. You can go find what they think on that issue of anxiety and fear. But what if I told you, brother, sister, that God has disclosed his own thoughts in numerous places on this exact subject? That you actually have in the Scriptures access to the mind of God on this subject of anxiety and fear? Do we take the Bible for granted? Do we take for granted that in the Scriptures we have access to the mind of the living God? We Christians in America, especially those who grew up in the church, may take for granted what we have in the Bible. We may not prize it as we should, the kind of free access to God that we enjoy through the Scriptures. Uh, Perhaps for some of us, we're just so familiar with the Bible structure, we've been learning about the Bible since we were kids, or we've been in so many sermons, it no longer seems wonderful to us, and we come to take the Scriptures for granted. But I can assure you, friends, it is not that way everywhere in the world, as many go without the Bible translated even in their own language. And it hasn't always been that way even in the English-speaking world. So I've been reading biographies of Thomas Cranmer. I mentioned him in the equip class, a great English reformer. Uh, and he served alongside Henry VIII and then after Henry VIII's reign. And one of the big issues under Henry VIII was whether or not the Bible would be translated into English. So you'd grown up in England in the 1530s. You had never read the Bible in your own language. You never heard it preached in your own language. Services were in Latin. Uh, the liturgy of the church, even things like the Apostles' Creed, you wouldn't read in English. And some of these biographies tell the accounts when the Bible was first translated. It was originally, I think, first in kind of the litany of the church. That's kind of like the church's liturgy, kind of like their order of service. And there were portions of the Scripture in the litany, and there are these accounts of people weeping, adult men weeping, as for the first time they heard the Word of God in their own language. And, 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 And whole services breaking out in spontaneous praise to God. Because now, finally, they have access to the Bible. And it used to be, eventually, Henry VIII would establish that the Bible would have to be at every church, and they would actually sometimes tie it to the pulpit so people couldn't run off and steal it. That's how much they valued the Bible. But you could come any day of the week, and you could sit at the foot of the pulpit, and you'd open the Bible, and you'd share it with your friends, and you'd come, and you'd read the Scriptures, because for the first time, we have God's Word. Some of you have chuckled, as I've suggested that uh, I wouldn't mind having two to three hour services. Um, I'd love it if we were more like the Puritans who did not count it too great a cost or inconvenience uh, to rise before dawn, to meet in some secluded place in the woods at 7 a.m., to listen to someone like John Flavel preach for 90 minutes. Some people among those congregations could remember the smell of burning flesh of those who died so that they could have access to the Bible. And they knew that was not too great a cost to gain the Bible. Some things are worth dying for. The Scriptures are worth dying for. And so they longed for the Bible. They were Bible people. They hungered for God's Word, and they treasured every chance they had to be before the Scriptures because it was like food for them. Well, may it always be so, brothers and sisters, to us, whether or not we have long services or short services, 
May it always be true that we prize the Bible above all else. Number two, what should mark Bible people? The first was that Bible people should prize the Bible above all else. Number two, Bible people should give themselves to the serious study of the Scriptures. Bible people should give themselves to the serious study of the Scriptures. Look again at Psalm 119, just three verses. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? You're a young man here and you're fighting for purity of all different kinds, sexual, intellectual, whatever. How can a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Bible people are eager to take time privately on their own to study out the Scriptures that they might learn more of God and His will. They want to press further and deeper into the meaning of the words and the phrases and the clauses of the Bible. They want to know how it all fits together. They want to understand the relationship of the Old Testament with the New. They want to know what did Abraham know and what did he believe about God that sustained him as he waited for the fulfillment of the promise. They want to know what David meant to convey when he wrote in the Psalms about his greater son to come. They want to know, they must know, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Why did Paul write it in that way, with those words? And, and, and how does what Paul wrote here relate to what Peter wrote there? Why are these the terms and the phrases and the ideas God selected to describe our salvation and our relationship with Him and our need for His grace? They want to know the Bible. And friends, they will not settle for a kind of superficial hovering above the surface of the text that never presses down into the words and phrases to wrestle with the truths of Scripture. So they're just not going to settle for little insights here or there. They don't just want the crumbs from the table. They want like the warm, wholesome loaf in the middle of the spread. And so they're constantly pressing deeper and further for fuller and richer discoveries of God and who He is as revealed in the Bible. They come to their quiet time in the morning for discovery, for sustenance, for life, for communion. And if there are commentaries and books that can help them, well, they grab a hold of them because they're eager to know, what does the Word say? If this book can help me, I want to read it. I want to be a better reader of God's Word. I want to get more out of the Scriptures. They give themselves to studying the Scriptures. But it's not just in private. Bible people should hunger for settings in which the Bible is to be taught to them. Sermons, classes, Bible studies, podcasts, lectures, however I can get it, I want to know the Bible better. And so I'm looking and searching for settings in which I could have the Bible taught to me. Uh, friends, why do you think so many of our gatherings are centered around the study of the Bible? Uh, we have all these different meetings. They're all basically the same thing. We give them different names just to trick you, uh, but, but they're all the same thing. What is, what is small group? It's just a Bible study. That's the big thing. What is equip class? Today wasn't a good example, but usually it's just a Bible study. The women's ministry we've very creatively called abide. It's just a Bible study. A men's breakfast, men are taking biblical thoughts 
translated them to us in ways that can be helpful to just studying the Bible. Why is it that so many of our gatherings as the church, meetings of the church, and things we put on the calendar are so centered on the Bible? It all flows from this view of God's Word. We know we need the Bible. And therefore, we hunger and we thirst for it. We must have it. And if we can multiply opportunities to, become, to come before it and to experience it and to know its life-transforming influence in our lives, we've got to have it. I'll just say, in the spirit of reflection, uh, Ben and I have been blessed and encouraged at precisely this point as we've observed uh, you. Uh, it, it has appeared to us over these five years as we have opened more opportunities to gather to study the Scriptures. People come. People come. Uh, like, like ants to a piece of cake that's fallen to the floor. Just when we open a new setting to study the Bible together, we don't doubt whether people are going to show up. And we bless God for that. We thank God that so many are interested in those settings to study the Bible. One final word on this point, I'll just say this is one of the reasons why we try to promote a culture of reading in the church, why we have a bookstall, and why we subsidize the bookstall, and why we frequently uh, give away books and constantly recommend books. It's not because we're nerds. It's because books are uniquely beneficial in helping us to go deeper in our study of the Bible. So, friend, if you want to jumpstart your study of the Scriptures and go deeper with God in the Bible, uh, go to the bookstall today and pick up um, Sinclair Ferguson's Lessons from the Upper Room uh, or Christ from Beginning to End by Stephen Wellam and I think Trent Hunter, or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Uh, these are for your benefit in growing in your knowledge of the Scriptures. And grab a friend maybe with you uh, to study the Scriptures together. And by the way, we don't gain anything by this, okay? So every time you buy a book, we actually lose money as a church. Uh, we have subsidized these books. This is your edification and sanctification subsidized by the generous gifts of the members of Emmanuel Church. All right, now point number three. What should mark Bible people? Number one, Bible people should prize the Bible above all else. Number two, Bible people should give themselves to the serious study of the Scriptures. And number three, Bible people should hunger for the gatherings of the church where the Word of God is to be central. I'm thinking primarily here of the main worship gathering, the gathering we're in now. Bible people should hunger for the gatherings of the church where the Word of God is to be central. Look with me in Psalm 119 at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Verse 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 81. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Verse 169. Verse 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. In our equipped classes, this morning was an exception, uh, but in our equipped classes lately, we've been discussing the means of grace old word to describe the means through which God brings His grace to us. A Bible intake, prayer, corporate worship, preaching, fellowship, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the point has already been made in those classes a time or two that though we have access to many of these means of grace in all kinds of different settings, praise God, uh, yet it's only in corporate worship 
that they're all present at once. The Sunday by Sunday, the table is spread, the feast is laid out, and the people come hungry to feast on God, His presence, His promises, and His Word. As the Word of God has been central to the constitution of God's people throughout redemptive history, so it has always been central to their gathering together. There are points in the Psalms, notice this in your reading of the Psalms, where the psalmist will equate coming before God Himself in worship with coming before His Word. See, it's almost the exact same thing in different places in the Psalms. And I think it is precisely uh, this point, centrality of the Word in the corporate worship gatherings of God's people, that gives the gathering of God's people such special priority in the Christian life. Uh, You've heard me say it many times, we are never more who we are as a church. If you're visiting with us, you want to know who Emmanuel Church is, and you want to know, like, what's the best way I can learn about the church, it's not in our membership class, it's not in our small groups, it's not on our website. We are never more who we are as a church than when we gather in the presence of God with the people of God for the worship of God. That is the essence of who we are as Emmanuel Church. God does not call a bunch of individuals to Himself and then ask them to walk alone. No, rather God calls His own into families of local churches. God has always been about forming a people, a corporate body made up of the many who become in a glorious sense one in their assembling, in their gathering together. Friends, even the very word we use to describe ourselves, uh, the biblical word that we translate church, comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a gathering or an assembly. And some commentators will suggest even further Uh, That word means particularly a called-out gathering and assembly, a group of people gathered for a particular purpose. So, brothers and sisters, even in taking the word church to ourselves, we are identifying ourselves as God's chosen, holy, and elect people set apart for the purpose of worshiping Him through His Word and through our fellowship together. It has been the Christian tradition for two millennia to do this on the first day of the week. Even today, in places all over the world, God's people are assembling as individual local churches, individual uh, ecclesias, uh, gatherings, assemblies, assembling for the purpose of worship, fellowship, and instruction in the Bible. And central to all of these gatherings, all of these assemblies, is the Word of God. God has spoken. He has given us His Word And we unite as His people, called, formed, and kept by His Word, to come now before Him and to know Him and worship Him by His Word. Which is why, brothers and sisters, when God's people gather in the presence of God with the people of God for the worship of God, the Word must be central to everything. We must read the Word. We must pray the Word. Uh, We must hear the Word. We must sing the Word. We must see the Word as it's displayed in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The Word is central to everything in our gatherings. The people of God should love to read the Bible in the corporate assembly. They should love to pray in accord with the Bible as they engage with God in prayer. They should be eager to sing to God His thoughts back to Him, singing His promises and extolling His character and attributes, even singing the very words of God in some of the psalms that we sing. They should love true expositional preaching of the Word of God. 
They should hunger for the life-giving, spirit-anointing, soul-transforming preaching of the Scriptures. Friends, why do you think we make so much of preaching here? It's not because this is a good form or ritual for good Christian people to attend to. It's not because preaching is in vogue or appeals in any special way to the 21st century mind. And it's certainly not because our preachers here in this church are especially charismatic personalities. You understand our view of preaching is downstream of our view of the Bible itself. It is the doctrine of the Word and its centrality in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church that shapes our view of preaching. Friends, even apart from any of the clear texts that would advocate for the centrality of preaching in the life of the church, it's simply logical. It's simply necessary. If this is what the Bible is, and if this is the place the Word of God is to have in our lives, how could we have a low view of preaching? Which is, in its very essence, the proclamation, the announcement, the heralding of the Word of God. We need the Bible, and therefore preaching then takes this place of extraordinary importance in our lives because we know the call of Scripture is that him who speaks in the church is to speak forth the oracles of God and how we need the oracles of God. The very Word of God, if that is what preaching is, 1 Peter 4.10, to speak the oracles of God, then it should have the highest place among us. If we are truly Bible people, we will come with eager expectation and anticipation as we come into the gathering and as we come under the preaching of the Word of God. And it must be said, if we are truly Bible people, the leaders of this church will be Bible people. Those responsible to organize and oversee this church and these worship gatherings, they must be Bible men. And the elders of the church must recognize they have no authority outside of the Bible. They must see it as one of their chief responsibilities to minister the Word of God to the people of God, to feed the people from the Bible, not from the fount of their insight and ingenuity, not from the storehouse of their experience personal wisdom, not from their life lessons that they've picked up along the way, but to give them food and drink from the very Word of God itself. But not only should the leaders of the church determine that they will give only the Word of God to the people of God, the people themselves must learn to demand this from their leaders. I was so helped. Uh, Nathan Streer's comment in the equip class, I think it was last Sunday, uh, our brother David Ray taught a fine class on preaching. And Nathan made the point, I think, toward the end of the class that, that preaching is so wonderful, it's, it's, and, and our preachers should have this particular view of preaching, but we as God's people have a responsibility. We have to expect this from our preachers and teachers and require this of our preachers and teachers. Friends, we can get upset all day long and trash bad leaders and the things that they've done, but I guarantee you uh, there was an audience ready to listen to them. And if it's a Baptist context, they voted to put those leaders in front of them, and they paid the salaries of those men. There's a certain responsibility we have in terms of the teachers we bring before us. Uh, Paul speaks about this. I think in 1 Timothy 4, uh, he warns Timothy of a time where people will have itching ears, and they'll gather to themselves false teachers. There's a responsibility they have in gathering to themselves people who are feeding them on things other than the Bible. 
So if you call a man to serve, brothers and sisters, as an elder here, it should be in large part because you believe him to be competent in the Scriptures. And especially for those particular elders who, as 1 Timothy 5.17 tells us, will be tasked especially to labor in word and doctrine, they must be proven in their ability to rightly handle the Word of God and to minister it to His people under their edification. And you must not settle for anything less. So if you went... Uh, to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse for a night out, and you ordered the most expensive cut of meat on the menu, and then the waiter comes out and brings you a Big Mac from McDonald's, well, gross, what would you do? You'd send it back, right? You should do the same. If you ever come to church to hear the Word of God and instead the man who stands where I'm standing right now gives you politics or his own personal life lessons or jokes or philosophy or anything other than what you came here for. Or you hear, I think it was a few weeks ago, we had a members meeting and at the front end of the members meeting in the evening we had Scott Daniel with us new pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church, so encouraged by Scott and that church, church we've been trying to encourage and pray for and help. And now Scott's come. He's going to be installed as a new pastor there soon. And I loved, I was interviewing Scott before our congregation, and I asked him about his work as a pastor. What, what is it that he's doing? What's, what's most important? What's most significant to him? How does he understand his job as the pastor of the church? And I loved, remember the illustration he used? Uh, he, said, he said, my job is that of a waiter. I mean, my job every week is to go into the kitchen where the chef has prepared the food, I'm supposed to take it from the chef and bring it out to the table and serve it to the people, and I'm not to take anything away from it or add anything to it. My job is the job of a waiter. I love that description. It exalts the chef, not the waiter. And the preacher's job simply is to go and mine for good things from the Bible and to bring it out before the people. They came for the Word of God. You go to Ruth's Chris, you expect a steak. You come to a church, you expect the Bible. At least that's how the saints of old used to view it. Coming to the church, that's where you go to get the Bible. It wasn't where you went to be entertained. It wasn't where you went primarily even to be encouraged or affirmed or inspired. It's where God's people would go to hear from God. And I don't mean through ecstatic, charismatic experiences. I mean through the Bible itself. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And how shall they hear if they don't have a preacher? And so I just want to say, if you have ever sat in a church service before, or in a sermon, and you've thought to yourself, I thought this was supposed to be where I go to get the Bible. Like, shouldn't there be more Bible here? Uh, why am I getting this other thing? Why are they trying to entertain me? Where's, where's the Bible here? Shouldn't I come and get the Bible when I come to church? You weren't wrong. Uh, I can remember I was in a, a church, uh, wonderful God-centered worship and exhibitional preaching, and there was a woman who came into the church out of just a really chaotic uh, church background, and we were in a Bible study together, a bunch of us in a Bible study, and the Bible study's carrying on, and she just sort of spontaneously interrupts the whole Bible study. Uh, And she said, could I just say how wonderful it is just to be able to come and just study the Bible? 
Um, I always thought I was weird or strange for wanting to do this. But just, just studying the Bible together. And I thought, how sad. How sad. This woman had gone from church to church. It felt like I wasn't getting the Bible. And here we are in a Bible study, which you would think is one of those basic things God's people, Bible people should be doing. She's thinking, why am I only just now getting this? I thought I was a weirdo or some kind of Bible nerd because I wanted to look at the Bible in church with God's people. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible should be central to everything we do. God's Word should condition and regulate everything about the church's life and ministry. We have nothing without the Bible. And again, if I could be a little reflective, I will say, and I was talking to a couple members who were at the beginning uh, this week, uh, we are genuinely shocked at how many people have come to this church uh, since the beginning. We, we used to fit on these three rows right up here. That was the church. And to see all of you here now, it's surprising to us. And I say that not like we did anything very special. You came with an appetite for the Bible. We didn't disciple you into that appetite. People came because they wanted the Word of God. And we are genuinely surprised to see what the Lord has brought together. May it always be so. Friends, it's when churches start to lose their hunger for the Bible and start to drift from their commitment to God's Word, and they begin to become fascinated by programs and by the song and dance and by being entertained with a thousand frivolities and silly things that can never be for them what the Bible is meant to be for them. It's then that the glory leaves the temple and the movement dies. This is a good prayer on the occasion of our five-year anniversary. God, give to us in our church always a hunger and a thirsting and a longing and a pining after your word. Let us not find satisfaction in anything else but your word. And in our gatherings as a church, may we always be able to say when we leave this place, we have feasted on the word of God today. God has done it again. He's met with us and he's spoken to us by his word and our faith is fed, our hope is sustained and our souls are kept by his commitment to speak to us again and again by the Bible. Congregations, friends, can so easily become dull and numb to the Bible over time. This kind of attitude, coming with expectation to the Bible, it has to be nurtured and cultivated. We can never allow it to be so that we become dull to the Word of God. And if I could just ask you to make a personal request, if I could urge you, listen, there's a lot of things those who preach and teach and lead need to do to prepare themselves to minister the Word of God. But there's something you must do. You must come always hungry, hungry and expectant for God to come and meet with us through His Word. You must come into the gathering of worship with the people of God, expecting to know God and experience Him and commune with Him. And it's so often in those settings where there is an atmosphere, an environment of expectation and longing and anticipation that God is pleased to come and to meet with us through the Bible. Point number four, much more briefly, and we'll be done. Number one, the Bible people should prize the Bible above all else. Number two, Bible people should give themselves to studying the Scriptures. Number three, Bible people should hunger for the gatherings of the church where the Word of God is to be central. Number four, Bible people should learn, Bible people should learn to pursue, expect, and experience 
real communion with God in His Word. Bible people should learn to pursue, expect, and experience real communion with God in His Word. Psalm 119 verse 10 says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Psalm 119 verse 93 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. Friends, it is on this particular point, I fear so many people, so many genuine Christians, uh, just do without and are contented to just sort of go uh, with less than what is their Christian birthright. They have not been taught to learn, to pursue, and to expect, and to find real communion with God at the level of His Word. What do we have in the Bible? I hope you study the Bible, look at the Scriptures every day. You should look at the Scriptures daily. Should come before God's Word every day, your quiet time, devotional time, whatever you call it. What are you doing? What is it like? What is happening when you come before the Bible? Well, it is not like uh, the kids when I was growing up when a new Harry Potter novel would come out. Everybody would rush to the store to grab the next novel in the series to know, like, what happened next to our favorite friends and then to kind of toss it. We don't come to the Bible just to learn the next chapter in the plot. Okay, because after a year or two, you've got to get the plot, right? It's not like coming to a novel. It is not even like coming to a letter or a note uh, from a lover. Uh, so maybe some here you would remember you were dating or maybe in your marriage or notes to each other and how you longed for those notes and you'd smell the note and you'd read the note and put it to your chest and you'd read it again. Those love letters from your beloved. Maybe you've heard people describe the Bible that way. The Bible is God's love letter to His people. I think that perspective of the Bible depreciates what we have in the Scriptures and what's meant to happen when we come before the Word of God. The Bible is not like reading a love letter from someone who's writing to us from a distant place. The Bible is like holding your beloved in your arms. I really do believe this. When we come before the Bible, we are to expect and experience real, genuine fellowship and communion and experience with God as a living person. When we come before His Word, we're not coming to an academic exercise or trying to learn things about ancient history or some sort of cerebral thing. When we come before the Bible, we are to experience fellowship with God as a living person who rises forth from the text and talks to us. He speaks to us through His Word. He reassures me of eternal life. He tells me that He loves me. He teaches me how to walk in the paths of righteousness. He assures me He'll never leave me or forsake me, and He guides me in the way that I should go. The Word of God, Psalm 119, verse 105, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. No one here should think, I can't wait to get to heaven, because then I'll, I'll finally know God. My friend, if that's your attitude, I think you're misunderstanding this whole thing. 
I, I know my Bible that we'll, you know, we see through a glass dimly and we walk by faith and not by sight and then we'll be holding face to face. That's all gloriously true. But you are not getting a different God in heaven, in the new kingdom, than you are getting when you come before his word. When you see the Lord with sinless eyes, resurrected body, he's not going to appear unfamiliar to you. If you have come to know him day after day, after day after day in the scriptures, talking with him, learning from him, he speaks to us and fellowships with us in his word. And I assure you, my friend, if you give yourself to that kind of study of the scriptures, if you come before the Bible with that posture, I'm gonna know God through his word. I'm looking for fellowship, for communion. You do that day after day, week after week, year after year, I guarantee you, you will know him. You can know God, but it's not going to happen through anything other than seeking living, vital communion with him through the scriptures. It is there that God speaks to us and embraces us. It's there that he saves us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're certain that even the one among us who has given the most hours to studying the Scriptures, who's been walking with you perhaps the longest, uh, that even that individual, like the rest of us, would be ashamed if we truly contemplated how much we have neglected your Word, how often we take it for granted, and how little we have expected when we come before the Bible. But, Lord, you have been gracious nonetheless to give us your word in abundance. You've given us the scriptures in our own language, and you have been so kind, Lord, in the context of this church to give us your word week after week in the context of our gathering. We pray that we would treasure the Bible, that we would grow on our understanding of it and our conformity to it. But more than that, that all of us who are your people would know something of the real experience of the knowledge of God through the Scriptures, that we would learn more and more to pursue and to expect and to actually experience company with you, communion with you, how good you are, Father, uh, that to those who come to you sincerely with a broken and contrite spirit, you're pleased to reveal yourself to them at the level of your Word. So please, Father, give to all of us greater measure of experience with you and knowledge of you in the Bible. Thank you for these five years and all that they've meant, all the blessing you've brought, how you formed us and called us and kept us by your word. Uh, Lord, we would dissolve in an instant uh, if you took your word from us. How could we even be a church anymore without the Bible? But Lord, you've continued to supply your word to us in abundance, we pray, in the years ahead. Uh, that we would never stray from your word, that we would give ourselves to the Bible, and that it would have a central place among us, and increasingly we would be willing to reflect on the ways that we have erred and strayed from the word, uh, that you would teach us sweetly more and more how to walk uh, in accord with the Bible, and that more and more we would love your scriptures and the God of the scriptures, that we would enter into real knowledge of the Almighty through the Bible. 
Bless us in this. Help us in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.